Welcome to the Australian Christian Lobby's Voice for Values. Welcome to Voice for Values. I'm Martin Isles. Headlines have, last week, been dominated by the case of Australian scientist David Goodall, who has travelled to Switzerland in order to legally end his own life. At 104 years old, with no significant health complications, Professor Goodall's age has been a triumph and his health, but for him it was time to end it all. This has brought the vexed issue of euthanasia back into the public spotlight, and it has caused a discussion to be raised about the morality, the wisdom, the sense, or the rightness or wrongness of allowing somebody who is tired of life to end it all. And I'm joined on Voice for Values today by Professor Ian Olver to discuss the implications of euthanasia policy. Professor Olver, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Professor, I just then referenced the case of David Goodall. There's been a lot of response to that, including from the Premier of Western Australia, who gave a implicit approval of what happened there. It was a very benign statement, but one that did not say that there was anything wrong with it. There's been a number of other advocates who have said this is a step in the right direction or this shows some very significant uh, uh, compassionate reason why euthanasia should be legal. What is your response? What do you think is the key take-home issue from the David Goodall uh, matter? Well, I was actually quite sad by this case because... Um, it was really a matter of considering someone who could find nothing valuable uh, in life at all, uh, and that included presumably relationships and uh, all the things that give people joy out of life, and he'd sort of run out of them. And I wondered um, whether someone had sat down and explored options that he may not have considered, uh, because I think uh, most people... When, when you do that, particularly with terminally ill patients, find something they still want to do or will still make them uh, want to, to have another day to, to achieve something while they're still alive. So I was just uh, sad that someone would get to that uh, uh, position in life. Uh, but the, the real question, even if someone does, does that mean that it, it is... Um, safe for the rest of the community uh, to, to legalise euthanasia. And that's, that, that has implications for the majority of people who won't get to that situation. There's a couple of things that come out of that, Professor Olver. And the first is, it strikes me that this may reflect a change in thinking in the community. Your response to the case is one of uh, seeking to understand what the the pro what the broader problem was, whereas uh, others don't seem to any longer think in terms of, well, if somebody sees no value in their life, we should help them to see value in their life. The change now is if they see no value in their life well, and they want to end it, then, then, then no worries. Once perhaps that would have been considered something to prevent, there could, should have been counselling involved there. There should have been some community or family input to solve that problem. Is this a, a change in thinking in the Australian community? Oh, look, I think it's, it's, it's part of um, the change that we've seen, that people are demanding personal autonomy, if you like, and that it means, you know, what I want is, is uh, above all. And, and um, it's different from uh, when you tend to give up some of your autonomous rights for the benefit of a society. So we are seeing a lot more um, in, in all sorts of aspects of life uh, you know, what's right is defined by what, what's good for me. 
Well, I'd like to pick up on that idea, actually, that uh, this really is a reflection of that idea that what's right for me is right. Uh, if we take that into a public policy setting and say, well, if somebody thinks it's right for them to end their life, then, then public policy should allow it. That's how we should define and shape the law. That's how we should define and shape what we do. I'd like to, to delve into that line of thinking and just see whether or not that is safe in the case of euthanasia. But before I get there, perhaps just a basic question to answer would be, what actually, in layman's terms, is euthanasia and how is it different to the way medical treatment is currently conducted? Well, I think that's an important question because it is being confused in much of the commentary. So what I'm referring to as euthanasia is voluntary active euthanasia. That's death caused by a deliberate action or deliberate inaction uh, which is intended to cause death because someone has requested it. So that's quite different from what some people have called passive euthanasia, but it's a, it's a term that's not very helpful because in general medicine, you do not give anyone a treatment that is likely to be harmful. And so you, you, when you're weighing up whether to treat someone, you weigh up the likely benefit against the likely harm. And you certainly wouldn't offer a treatment if the harms are worse than the benefits. So that when we get towards the end of life, there's some treatments uh, that will not prevent death that are nonetheless burdensome that can be withdrawn. Well, that treatment withdrawal is not you know, passive euthanasia. That's simply continuing the, the usual ethos of medicine where you try and do no harm and you withdraw burdensome treatment. So I, I think the two have been confused uh, in that way and, and I think we need to clarify that. We're actually talking about actively giving something to secure the death of a person. Is it a question of intent, the intention of behind the administration of the treatment? So if it's intended to kill the person, then it's, it's euthanasia. Well, well, absolutely, because if you withdraw a treatment, and, and when you do that, often the patient does not die, uh, at least straight away. And if your intent was to kill someone, you withdrew a treatment and that didn't do it, then you'd secure another way of killing them. Uh, but, but in treatment withdrawal, you've withdrawn a burdensome treatment. Um, uh, but often people don't die and they get supported, but they're far more comfortable than they were uh, when the treatment that wasn't going to affect the outcome anyway, any longer, is, is withdrawn. I, I don't think that can be equated to, to euthanasia, to securing someone's death at all. Now, of course, sometimes you, when you withdraw a treatment, um, Later on, someone will die, but, but, but that's because they, they're dying of an underlying cause that you can't um, reverse. So in a nutshell, the rumours and the notion that euthanasia is already happening, it's just not legal, are essentially wrong. There is no intentional active treatment that is designed to end life being administered in our hospitals. Uh, Professor Olver, I'm going to pick up that exact thought when we come back right after this break. Voice for Values at acl.org.au Welcome back to Voice for Values. I'm Martin Isles. Expert Professor Ian Olver joins me on today's program and we have just been discussing the difference between euthanasia and existing medical treatment and arriving, I believe, Professor Olver at the conclusion that there is no current medical practice that is 
like euthanasia or that amounts to euthanasia? What I'm saying is, I, I mean, I can't say that in every case someone's not doing the, the wrong thing. What I'm saying is that the treatment withdrawal of burdensome treatment towards the end of life when that treatment won't make any difference is not euthanasia. And yet that's the thing that's often confused with euthanasia in the debate that says, look, it's already a widespread practice. Yes, treatment mm. withdrawal of burdensome treatment is widespread, but that is not euthanasia. Right. Professor Olver, why do we draw the line at the sacredness of life? I think you quoted that part of the Hippocratic Oath that says, do no harm. Why do we draw the line there as an absolute standard? Because I think euthanasia, it, it seems to me, the advocates want to draw the line somewhere else. Uh, they want to say, no, it's, 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 it's a different standard. But why do we choose that standard? Life is sacred. Well, I think that um, one of the things is that we, we're not able for the moment to create life from inert materials and we're not allowed, we're not able, sorry, to recreate life. So that gives it a value in itself. And, and what the euthanasia debate is really saying that there is one other value that we're putting above life and that's personal autonomy. Mm. And so you can make, you know, you, you have to make an argument that for some reason the quality of personal autonomy was more important than life itself. Mm. And one of the difficulties with that, of course, is to express autonomy, you need life. So it's, it's difficult to suggest that autonomy could come out on top of what we value, on top of life itself. They're the sort of things you've got to think through in terms of the euthanasia issue. What about the practical outcomes of adopting that, uh, as we mentioned before the break, we're adopting that principle that autonomy is uh, the thing that should define what is right in this, quest in this particular issue of euthanasia. I mean, there are practical outcomes. You know, people often refer to this as the slippery slope, and a, a lot of people say it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's bogus. But we've seen euthanasia legislated in a number of countries around the world now, notably places like the Netherlands and Belgium. And I understand in Belgium, Euthanasia for children is now legal. Um, there's stories coming out of the Netherlands of all kinds of circumstances where people who were depressed have been euthanized, uh, euthanized without their, their family's knowledge. Those issues, where does this go practically once we say autonomy is the principle? Well, I think um, slippery slope arguments are difficult because you've got to actually show that the slope is, is real. And, of course, with, with examples overseas, you may be able to do that. But... Um, I think the, the, the issue for me with, uh, with the danger of legislating for uh, euthanasia was that the fact that we, at the moment we live in a, an economically rationalist society. Uh, we don't have enough resources to give everyone all the treatments they need in medical terms and so on. So mm. the concern is that there would be, in an economically rationalist society, there would be undue pressure or subtle or otherwise placed by um, um, the medical system or relatives and so on on someone who had the option for euthanasia uh, to pursue that option even if it wasn't their uh, stated uh, intent. So it's, a, it's sort of a, a question of, well, um, you know, uh, grandparent so-and-so who's reached the age of, you know, 104, as in the case of David Goodall, you know, maybe it's time to quote-unquote do the right thing. Um, and well, that's right. Do the right thing by society, by the relatives who might need the inheritance. I mean, these are, are difficult cases and to, to, to argue, but the reality is that 
You know, there are the 104-year-olds who are looking forward to being 105 for all sorts of reasons. Mm. I mean, sometimes at that age, you value relationships, you value even being relieved of some of the physical uh, things that you did. You, you value uh, exploring the spiritual for the first time or, or you know, being um, exposed to new experiences and so on. So that some people... Uh, find all sorts of things to make their life valuable even when they're old or even indeed when they've got uh, illnesses because, uh, you know, pain is often an example given, you know, intractable pain, but the reality is the opposite to a, to a, uh, a bad life, if you like, is a good life. It's not best. And I've just noticed too the other day that uh, many of the euthanasia bills that are introduced around the country have various limitations. So, and they'll always say this is very, very safe. You've got to be over 25 in the case of the New South Wales bill, or you need the sign off of a couple of doctors, or you need to be in, uh, have a medical condition that will uh, not see you live more than two years. Um, but when you look at, say, David Goodall or the examples we've just talked about, um, these are cases that don't fit those criteria, and yet they are welcomed by the euthanasia advocates. So, is there a is there a problem here with defining the appropriate limits? Look, I think there is. I mean, most of the uh, bills that are put up in, in the Australian context have clearly been uh, in an attempt to relieve suffering, but but in a way, it's a, it's a it's slightly trite attempt because, as I've said. Um, uh, you know, physical suffering is not the be-all and end-all. And I always give the example of the marathon runner who has this goal of achieving one of, you know, athletics' great milestones. And around about 36 kilometres, when you hit the wall, it's incredibly painful. But they press on because they've got a greater goal. And I think the aim in life sometimes is, is, is to find out what those things are. One of the things that um, always struck me is that many patients I've talked to about this um, have suggested that one of the reasons that they don't see their life as valuable anymore is they cannot uh, any longer do things for their families. Mm. And, and yet if you ask their families, they don't care less. They just want them to be around, to interact with them, to love them and so on. So mm. I think... Uh, we can be a bit trite about the physicals of be-all and end-all because there are things that, even in, in normal daily life, there are things that transcend the physical. Mm. Well, Professor Olver, it's been a, a wonderful and enlightening discussion with you today. Thanks so much for coming on the program and sharing your insights. Voice for Values from the Australian Christian Lobby at acl.org.au.